uh, the passage that Brendan read, and read so well, uh, the passage of the announcement to the shepherds by the angels of the birth of Christ. We'll be taking time to look at this. We'll be taking time to uh, actually focus in on Luke chapter 2, verse 14 in particular. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open up and you can follow along. We'll be projecting the verses on the overhead as well. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can follow along on the overhead. But let me pray. Let me pray and ask God's blessing on our time in His Word this morning that we might encounter Him through His living Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this wonderful passage in Luke chapter 2. We thank You, Lord, for just all that's there, the truth and, and what happened Revelation to lowly shepherds of the glory of, of the king who's come, who's been born in Bethlehem, born in, in really a stable. Just all the truth that's here, the wonderful truth of this, the angel's proclamation. These glorious heavenly angels that minister in the throne room and, and their worship in that moment before the shepherds. We ask you, Lord, as we Consider these truths. Would you draw us in? Draw us in to the truth of their proclamation and all that it means. Would you grant us through this peace, fresh peace in your presence and glory to your name. We thank you, Lord, that you are so interested in visiting us this morning through your word. So come, come Holy Spirit and work your wonders in our time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to focus on just that one verse, uh, verse 14, the proclamation of the angels where they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The title of the message this morning is Got Peace? Question mark. And and. The proclamation of the angels is peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. So I want to take time to consider this truth of God's peace. And as I prepared uh, and thought about this proclamation of the angels of peace among those with whom he is pleased, peace peace among men, I thought of the story of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He's a poet. He grew up in Portland, Maine. Uh, He's the author of Uh, poems maybe you're familiar with, like The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. Uh, Listen, my children, and you shall hear The Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. Does anyone know that poem? And Evangeline and others. He worked at at Harvard, lived in Cambridge, Mass. And a little bit about his life, he he loved a woman named Frances Appleton. And uh, and there's a long story there. He, He she wasn't very interested in him, but he was interested in her, and it took seven years of pursuing Frances to finally convince her to, to marry Henry, and uh, they were married, and they had a, a happy home, five uh, children, Charles, Ernest, Alice, Edith, and Allegra, and uh, the story of their life is one of a happy home, but in, in the summer of 1861, tragedy struck their home, and, the, and I tell this story because as we talk about peace, uh, at Christmas time, in some ways, of course, it's very fitting. It's the angel's proclamation. But for many of us, because of different situations, life situations, it can be anything but a season of peace. And the story of, of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow is one that is very poignant and perhaps uh, 
similar to maybe your circumstances. So this was a happy home, but in the summer of 1861, tragedy struck. Uh, Fanny or Francis recorded in her journal on July 9th, um, we were all, quote, we were all signed for the good sea breeze instead of this stifling land one filled with dust. Poor Allegra is very droopy with heat, and Edie has to get her hair in a net just to free her neck from the weight. And so it's a hot July. And what happened uh, is uh, in the story, after trimming some of Edith's curls, uh, Frances wanted to preserve her daughter's beautiful curls, and so she wanted to use sealing wax to preserve them. And as she did so, she was using a candle to melt the sealing wax in her dress, and they would wear these big dresses back then, it caught on fire. Um, and, and she was badly burned. Uh, she actually ran into the room where Henry was. He was taking a nap, and you know she was on fire. He jumped up, took a rug, a throw rug, threw it around her, tried to put the fire out, was severely burned himself, and, and, um, and Edith was, was burned more severely, and she ended up actually dying from her burns. Um, Henry was so uh, grieved and uh, burned himself, he was unable to t- attend the funeral, and life took a turn for Henry at that point, from really a happy family life to, to much grief, and he writes in that next Christmas, he, he wrote, quote, how inexpressibly sad are all holidays. And for those of us who have lost loved ones, sometimes Christmas season is, is a sad season. It's a season where there isn't peace. A year later, uh, he wrote, um, I can make no record of these days. Better leave them wrapped in silence. Perhaps someday God will give me peace. His journal entry for the next Christmas is, he wrote, quote, A Merry Christmas, say the children, but that is no more for me. About a year later, he received word that his oldest son, Charles, as a lieutenant in the Army of the Potomac, had been severely wounded in, in a battle and uh, had damaged his spine. And on the next, uh, the two Christmases later, actually, 1864, the, the country was amidst a terrible war, the Civil War, and it's really hard for us to grasp um, how terrible this war was. It, it was on our own soil, and if you know the record, 600,000 uh, young men died in that war. That was about 2% of the population. So that the equivalent nowadays would be as if 6 million of our young men died in a war. It was a, a horrible war. And so he was going through all this tragedy personally, and, and it came to Christmas time. And he wrote at that Christmas in 1864 the now famous words of a Christmas carol that we sing called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. I think we have this to project. Listen to the words. He wrote these words as he wrestled with both the sorrow of what Christmas represented for him personally um, through the loss of his wife and the wounding of his oldest son and the terrible tragedy of the war and the hope that he knew about as someone who had grown up around the truths of of Christmas and and, in that culture at that time. It was just very prevalent. He wrote this poem at the time, Now a Christmas Carol. It says, I heard... The bells on Christmas Day. Their old, familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, Singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth. Good will to men. 
Then, from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth. Goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and marks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells, more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, good will towards men. Our passage today in the proclamation of the angels is a more powerful truth a more powerful truth than the things that we would wrestle with that might take away our peace. It's a surer proclamation than than the bad news that maybe we wrestle with. It's a proclamation that stands as God's truth proclaimed by angels who minister in His presence as a truth to wrap our lives around in this season and at all times. Glory to God in the highest and peace to men on earth with whom he is pleased. And so I want to take time this morning just to focus on this proclamation, just to think about what they said and to wrap our lives around this truth. And through this, I believe, to experience peace. This proclamation of the angels was not just for the shepherds. This proclamation of the angels is, was for Henry Longfellow and is for us as well. It's a call to rest in the peace of God we have through Christ to God's glory. And that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about this peace of God that we have through Christ to God's glory. Those are the different sub-points in your notes you can follow along. So let's dig in and first talk about this idea of the peace of God. The angels proclaimed this peace on earth. And when they say that, it's important for us to understand that that the peace on earth that they're proclaiming is much broader and bigger than modern understanding of peace. We tend to think of peace in a limited or a different way. The peace proclaimed in the Scripture is more than just a temporary sense of serenity. It's more than the cessation of war. It's more than a political policy. The peace in the Bible is a peace that addresses the entirety of creation. It's a peace meant for all of creation. It's a peace that is to affect every aspect of creation. It's a peace for uh, to exist among family members, to exist among neighbors, to exist among countries and tribes and ethnicities. It's a peace to be experienced in the weather. It's a peace in the economy. It's a peace in health. It's a peace in body. It's a peace for mind. It's a peace for soul. It's a spiritual peace. It's a relational peace, a physical peace, and even a cosmic peace. It's a peace that is to pervade everything. It's to be experienced personally in our own souls, in our own minds, but also relationally. In every way, the biblical peace is much broader than just simple peace, temporal, temporary serenity. 
And it would take a long time to go through all of Scripture and look at all the verses that speak about it, about the promise of peace. But let me just show you a few. A few that that are featured in the prophetic books uh, of the Old Testament. First, if you could project Isaiah chapter 32. This is a promise given to these people who were actually struggling in which, with much strife. It says, Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. Elsewhere in Isaiah, God says through Isaiah the somewhat well-known words, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the shepherd shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. One more from Ezekiel. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. These are just three different passages about this peace and there's lots more you could look at in your Old Testament to find. And these are promises given to a people who were actually not experiencing peace. The storyline was that God had rescued His people from slavery and oppression. And He had rescued them in a dramatic, powerful way. And He had called them to Himself. He said, I want you to be My people. I want you to believe Me. I want you to walk in My ways. And so He called them and gave them His law. He gave them a law, a way of life that that, uh, covered every aspect of life personally, how they were to conduct themselves, how they were to conduct themselves in their families, in their neighborhoods, in their country, how they were to worship. It it really covered everything. And he laid out this wonderful way of living that, that was really an ideal culture and an ideal kingdom for them to experience where God would dwell in their midst. And he promised peace for them if they would believe and obey. And if you know the story you know that's not what happened. You know that they failed to believe and they failed to, be, to obey. And they went through this constant cycle of, of wandering from God and then experiencing the consequences of their, of their disobedience and their lack of faith. And, and God would discipline them and then they would repent and come back and they'd have a little season of peace. But then again, they'd wander. And those cycles continued and they got worse and worse. Ultimately, their, their disobedience was so serious, so awful, it was really worse than anything that any of their neighbors who, who did not have any, have any covenant agreement with God did. And so God had to banish them from their homeland, had to banish them from this land of peace that they were to experience. And it was amidst this strife, it was amidst this season of, of being exiled from God that God promised them this wonderful peace. And these promises for them were 
were really a call to come back to the Lord, but also for those who were trusting in God, it was medicine for their souls. When you're in strife, these promises of God's peace are medicine for our souls because we may not experience at, at the time the fullness of that peace, but the promise of the peace empowers us, strengthens us, and gives us even peace amidst strife. There was a time in my life uh, back when I was in college where for different reasons I was just going through a hard time. I had just personal struggles and different things and and I can remember how things just uh, felt very unstable Um, and and it was a hard time. And during that time I rediscovered uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, I had read them a little bit when I was younger. I rediscovered them, and I started reading through the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, how many here have read the Chronicles of Narnia? A lot. Wow. Wow, that's most of us. Fantastic. Um, the movies are okay. The books are way better. Um, and so I was reading through these Chronicles of Narnia, and it was just for me in that season a, a way to escape, a way to escape to a place where, where while it was just all full of wonder, there's talking animals and and there are um, there is a king, uh, a, a lion who is a Christ-like figure. There's castles. There's kings and queens and evil witches and giants and, and all these sorts of things. And, and there's this wonderful storyline in the Chronicles of Narnia of of how the the world falls under. In this, in, actually, I should tell you too. There's these English school children. You guys, most of you would know, who come and in, in come into this fantasy world and experience all these things. And there's this wonderful storyline in, in there where uh, this kingdom falls under darkness. It falls under evil of this evil witch king and queen. And, um, and the children are caught up in this redemptive story where Aslan himself comes in and, and through his death redeems sinful people in the sinful world and, and, and conquers the queen, banishes her. And, and that kind of uh, starts the adventure of the whole chronicles of now Aslan as he extends his reign. It's just a fantastic book. It's a fantastic series. And for me at the time, it was a, a place to escape, to, to find a place where there was the promise of the king and the promise of this peace. And if you read through the series, the, the last book is the last battle, right? Uh, and, and it's a wonderful book. And at the end of the book, it has this great quote. As, as the peace that Aslan brings is finally fully realized, it says the following. I think we have this to project as they are finishing up their story. And it says, And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all stories. And we can most truly say they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was the only, be- only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Now, if you know... The rest of the story, you know that C.S. Lewis was a Christian and that his series was informed by the storyline of the Bible. And he was really, through these books, pointing to ultimately what the Lord was doing and what the Lord would do. 
And for me in that season of life to read through the books and, and to experience the peace was ultimately, uh, uh, the t- things that were ministering to me were the truth of the Scripture behind the storyline. And these promises of peace, peace in the Chronicles of Narnia are, are really pointing to real promises that for us minister peace. This wonderful peace announced by the angels. The peace that we need. The peace that God would want to call us to. This peace from God. So that's a little bit about the peace of God from Scripture. The angels announce this peace. It's a peace for men. It's a peace that we are to have. It's a peace intended for us. This pronouncement was not just for the shepherds, but for us as well. It says, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now that might be a little bit of a different translation than what you're used to. The ones from the, the old songs, the translation from the old songs, of the carols, and, and of course from even uh, Longfellows, is that the angels proclaim peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Have you heard that before? And you may be wondering, okay, well, which, what is it? I mean, what, is, what did they really say? Well, what they really said is recorded in a different language. It's, it's recorded in uh, ancient type of Greek, a, a common Greek of the time, Koine Greek it's called. And, uh, and what they said is, is consistent. It's been there in the scriptures all along. So there's never been any debate about what the original language says, but there's been debate about how to understand it. And I think it has impact on understanding who this wonderful proclamation is for. Because the way it's worded, it says, the angels say, glory to God in the highest. Now that makes sense, right? We know what they're saying there. Glory to God. They're saying glory to God in the highest, in heaven, right? It's clear they're, they're proclaiming glory. They're proclaiming praise and honor to God, greatness to, to God in the highest. And then it says, peace to men, uh, and it's peace to men, meaning generic, so that's why it says those in our translation. Peace to, on earth to men. Um, so that part is where it gets a little bit like, well, okay, what exactly is it saying? So let me just kind of lay some things out, because I think it's important for us to understand for whom is this promise of peace? Who does it apply to? Is it peace for everybody? Because it says in the old translation... Uh, Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Actually, in the old translation, it says that it's peace on earth, right? So whatever that is, peace on earth, some sort of, maybe it's biblical peace, generic peace, and goodwill to men. So actually, in the old translation, the, the angels are saying peace and goodwill to men. Now, I would submit to you that that's not a good translation. The old translation isn't good. Uh, and so the newer translations say something slightly different because as they wrestled with this Scripture, they came to understand, perhaps it doesn't say that. So let me just kind of lay it out. And I just want to talk about who it applies to, because that's so important. I, I think we have to back up and think, you know, this promise of peace is wonderful. But is it for everybody? Who is it for? Is it, is it for me? Is it for that other person? Is it, I mean, are there any conditions for this peace? Is it just a universal peace that everyone is to experience? I think we would say no, right? If we look through Scripture, we see that there is a category of people who are not promised peace. There's a category of people who turn away from God, who say, I don't want your ways. 
Actually, that's the category we're all born into. That's the natural disposition of mankind. We don't want peace, at least not his peace, because his peace, he's at the center, and it's on his conditions. It's glorious, there's not a better peace, but it's his peace, not how we want it. And mankind, uh, left to ourselves, we don't want things on God's terms, we want them on our terms. And that category of mankind, which we're all in naturally, unless something happens, is not promised peace, right? Right? The scripture is pretty consistent. I mean, there's all sorts of verses we can go to. We don't like to look at the verses, but they're there. One is 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. We have this to project. Um, and where, where Paul is talking about this category of people that, that don't turn to the Lord, don't believe in Him, don't turn from their self-determination and sin, whatever that might be, uh, just that, that, that self-determination can manifest in all sorts of ways. We like to think of it as, you know, those are the worst people in the world, and I'm not one of them. You know, the self-determination leads to all sorts of... Hitler is one of those guys, you know, obviously, and I'm not a Hitler. But the reality is in Scripture that all mankind is in the same category. We may not do the worst things we could do, but apart from the Lord's intervention, we all want to determine our own destiny and our own way of doing things. And for some people, that results in horrific things. Others, it, it makes them actually pretty moral people. Because their morality is driven not by love for God but by love for doing things their own way. So you could be actually a very moral person and be very far from God. That's a scary thought, isn't it? And sometimes those are the hardest ones to reach to help them understand they need God because like, well, I don't, my life's pretty good and I'm a pretty good person. Jesus had the harshest words for the Pharisees who were the, the most moral people around at the time because they thought they were fine without God. So whatever it might be, there's this category of people who are self-determined, who are, are separate from God. And, and Paul says this pretty stark words here, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They do not go, know God. They do not submit to God's truth to find, to find him through the good news of Christ. And then he says they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. They will be shut away from all that is good because they've said, I don't want to live that way. I want to live life on my own terms. And ultimately, God says, okay, here you go. This is eternity on your terms. And it's a dark place. So there's this category of people that are not promised this peace. So let's dig into the verse a little bit to try to understand what it teaches us. Who is this for? Who, who are the men on earth? So let me just kind of lay out to you uh, some things. Uh, first, just a real word-for-word uh, -word type of translation of this passage. And then we'll, we'll dig into some things more. We'll look at, at the conditions for receiving this promise. This is really how I would translate it if I were to just do it word-for-word -word from the original language. It says, Glory in the highest to God. And on earth, peace among men. It uses the word for men. It's a generic word. It means mankind, men and women. So glory in the highest to God. And on earth, peace among men. The angels are actually proclaiming the praises to God. They're really, basically they're singing. And so this is like a verse to a song, right? And so it's poetic. Glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace to men. It, it's, there's poetic parallelism there, right? So, so glory to God, where is God in the highest? Peace to men, where are men? On earth, 
All right, so, so it's, a, it's a poetic, a song-type proclamation. And then it adds at the end of the word men, this word that we translate those who, with whom he's pleased or goodwill. It's a one word in the original language, and I usually don't to, you know, talk about the original language because our English translations are so excellent. And certainly the English Standard Version and others do explain this. But I want you to understand what's behind it, partly because we've heard the old song so much. You know, peace on earth, goodwill to men. But it doesn't say that. It says, it says peace on earth to men. And then this word, uh, the word is uh, eudokia, um, which just means goodwill. And it's in a form, it means of goodwill. So you could translate it, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to men of goodwill. All right? So that is kind of literally how, it, how it's phrased. But the question is, of whose goodwill? Of men's goodwill? So then the condition would be, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to men of goodwill. In other words, if you're a good person, you get this promise. Right? If you're a good-natured, good-willed person, the peace is for you. Now, in some ways, if you are good-natured, you know, the, often you do enjoy a more peaceful life. But... That's contrary to Scripture because Scripture says uh, we receive God's blessing not through earning them, you know, not through being good people. So, I mean, I'm in trouble at least if it's conditioned on being a person of goodwill because I'm often not a person of goodwill. So I hope it means something else than that, that it's merely men of goodwill. Good-natured people get to enjoy this peace. Well, this word is used elsewhere in Scripture. And when we want to understand something it's always good to dig somewhere else in Scripture. So, uh, Michael, if you could project some of the next verses. These are other verses where the same word is used. So we're just going to walk through this so I, so I can help you understand what it's saying. First is Luke 10, chapter, chapter 10, verse 21. And this is Jesus as he's uh, gone out and his disciples have gone out and proclaimed the good news. And there's results that have happened. And Jesus, at the end of that, he talks and says, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Isn't that interesting? He's rejoicing. You've hidden these things from the wise and understanding, meaning the people who think they're wise, and revealed them to little children, people who realize they're, they don't know and they need help. And then he says, yes, Father, for such was your goodwill. It's translated there, gracious will. For such was your goodwill. Same word, your goodwill. So here it is, God's goodwill, what? To reveal himself to little children and to hide himself from smug people. That's his goodwill. Okay, let's look at a couple other verses. Ephesians 1, verse 5. It says, speaking of the wonder of God's plan of redeeming his people, he said he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to goodwill, is literally what it says. The purpose of his will is how it's translated there. According to goodwill. Whose goodwill? Well, here it means God's goodwill, right? The purpose of his will. His, his is inserted by the translators to help us understand it, but it's the same word. Philippians chapter 2 is the next one. And I could spent a lot of time showing you this. This is my last one. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his goodwill, his good pleasure. It's the same word though. And I could take you on a journey through all of scripture actually. And this idea is everywhere. And in the Old Testament, the equivalent word is usually translated favor, the favor of God, the goodwill of God. 
And so we understand from this that it's saying that it's men and women of God's favor, favorite of God. And that's why the translation in the ESV says, among those with whom he's pleased. It doesn't mean pleased like you did something to earn it. It means that he has shown you favor. He's given you grace. It's those to whom he is gracious. That's the condition. It's of his goodwill. It's of his kindness. It's of his decision to be gracious. And you might be thinking, I don't know if I like that. I don't know. It doesn't seem very Christmas-like to me. It seems kind of exclusive. I kind of like the old thing, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Just everybody gets it. Isn't that better? Isn't that more gracious? I'm just trying to be honest with what the Bible says. And there are times the Bible says things that we, we don't like. We're not comfortable with. In our culture, we like, we like fairness. Everybody gets the same chance in every way. We don't, like, we don't like that the ultimate choice rests somewhere else besides us. We like to be the captain of our own destiny. So these sort of ideas that, that somehow God might show favoritism, is it? Or whatever it is, I don't like that. I understand that. I feel that. But the Bible does say what it does say. And we have to wrestle with it. We like to be the ones making the choice of who's favored and who's not. And guess what? We'll always say, I'm the favored one. We don't like what this seems to say. So we want it to say the choice is based on us. We think that maybe is a better choice. Isn't that fair? That, uh, that God just kind of gives his peace and goodwill everywhere and then you get to choose to receive it or not and it's only about our choice now I'm going to get to qualifying how this works so don't think that I'm saying there's no choice your choice doesn't matter it does matter a lot but we'd rather have our choice to be the ultimate decider in all this but you know what that would be a really bad thing because the Bible's pretty clear that left to ourselves, we are never going to choose God. The, the reality of how sin has affected humankind, how it has affected our own hearts, the, the depth of our depravity, uh, if it was up to us, heaven would be entirely empty. There'd only be one human being in heaven, Jesus Christ. Because none of us would choose him. If it was up to us, no one would choose him. We want everything but him. We want all the good things that he gives, but we don't want him. We don't want him at the center. That's the reality. So it's actually, actually quite merciful and gracious of God to be the one who makes the choice. Maybe to give you a picture, that would help. As we read these things, as we read these sort of truths in Scripture about God being the ultimate one who chooses, uh, we, we struggle with it at times. And, and we might think that, you know, this is somehow exclusive of God. This is God just being mean. In other words, all of us are, are pounding on heaven's door. Lord, Lord, please let me in. I want you. I want heaven. And every now and then he kind of like, you know, just pushes the door open and goes, okay. Uh, and there's a crowd of like millions. Of, you, you can come in. And he kind of brings in and slams the door again, you know. And he's being exclusive. That's what we tend to think. But that's not at all the truth of Scripture. Here's the truth of Scripture. Heaven's gate is wide open. And God is shouting, Come unto me, 
whosoever would believe, come and you will be forgiven. And he's given, he's put us in this world full of pictures of himself and his goodness and glory everywhere. And he said, would you just please come? And everybody, all of humanity are running in the opposite direction from the, from the gates of heaven and with their hands on the earth shouting, ma, 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 I don't want to hear. And God is pleading. That's that's the picture Scripture gives of humanity. There's not a single one who is righteous. Not a single person who's deciding on their own, I want God. And so this is what God's choice looks like. He runs after people, running away. And he tackles them. And he gives them power to see how foolish they've been and how good he is. And he gives them the ability to understand, yes, how foolish, how dumb of me, how good you are. I want you. And then he freely receives us. All who would turn and believe, he freely receives. That's what it looks like. So when we read these scriptures, that's what we need to understand. It's his gracious kindness and mercy. You are given these promises of peace that are for you if you are a believer. And they are grounded on His mercy alone. His grace alone. His goodness alone. There's nothing in and of ourselves that could merit this. So how do we deal with these truths? Let me just think with you through a few things. How do we wrestle with them? What are they to do? What's the intent of saying these things in Scripture? Now, God you know, didn't necessarily have to say this. He could have, these things are mysterious. We don't understand, and it starts to blow your mind, right? Because we all know our choices mean something. And now this is saying it's ultimately God's choice. How does that work? It gets confusing. And maybe God could have just been a lot nicer for our simple brains just to never tell us and just let us operate in us. But he tells us for a reason. And there are a number of reasons in Scripture that are there for why he tells us. The first reason is so we would recognize that we are rescued by him alone, by grace alone, by his kindness alone, through no merit of our own. And to him goes all the glory. He alone is good. He alone is faithful. That's really the the, the first function. It gives glory to him. And really the second function, it gives peace to us. Because we start to realize, you know what? I mean, my choices matter. God wants me to be faithful and so forth. That matters. But ultimately, behind it all, it's because of His grace. And these promises of peace are not conditioned on how good I am today or how I feel this Christmas season versus last Christmas season. How I feel this morning, how well I'm getting all these things. It's not conditioned on me. It's conditioned on Him. So when the angels say, peace to men on earth... I can ground my life on that and know it's consistent. This promise is always the same for me. And it is the fullness of the biblical promise. Not because I'm good enough today, but because God has been gracious to me, a sinner, and I've come to believe and been connected to Him through Christ. So it gives us peace to know that He is the author and finisher of our faith. The third way to relate to this has to do with how we understand how we relate to those who don't yet know the Lord. Because there can be a temptation to look at this and think, well, if it's up to the Lord, then, you know, then what, you know, if you're not a believer, then you mustn't be chosen, right? You mustn't, his favor mustn't be for you. But Scripture never does that. 
Scripture never really says, well, you know, this is, this is to somehow exclude those who don't know Christ. It never presents things that way. Scripture calls everyone to repent and believe the good news. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever should believe in Him will receive eternal life. That's how it's presented always. It's a mystery we don't understand because it says who, whosoever. And yet it says in our passage today, those of His favor. So how do we do that? Well, we, we, we live in both those truths and they seem to be contradictory, but they aren't in God's economy. God says whosoever. And, and it's never presented the excuse that, you, well, somehow you're not one of favor. You know, I, I don't have God's favor. That's why I don't believe. Never presented that way in Scripture. It's always presented this way. Repent and believe the gospel. Whosoever should believe will be saved. So if you're here today and you're not yet a believer and you're, and you're hearing me talk about this favor and you're getting angry, let me just tell you it's a mystery. God operates on a plane we don't understand. But on our plane, he calls us to choose. To choose to repent and believe and trust in him. Don't waste your time trying to figure out whether you're favored or not. Run as quickly as you can to Jesus. And then you will know you are favored when you believe in him. That's how it's handled in scripture. Run to him, whosoever. I heard uh, someone explain it this way. Imagine a gate, the gate of heaven again, and it says in the front of the gate, whosoever should believe. And that's the presentation to all of humanity. Whosoever should believe. Just turn and trust. And when you walk through that gate and you look back over the frame, it says over that frame, favored of God. It works both ways. Coming in, the invitation, whosoever, believe. But once you are at that place of believing, you recognize, you know what? Mysteriously, though I know I chose, it was my choice, it was a real choice, I chose to repent and believe, ultimately that behind that choice is the favor of God in my life, the mercy of God, not me at all. Behind it was a God who opened my eyes up. I hope that makes sense. I hope that's helpful. This is an area that we wrestle with, but it's a truth that's throughout the pages of the Bible. The Bible presents both these things all the time. It speaks again and again that it's, it's ultimately God's choice. We are His chosen people. It's His mercy. It's His favor. Yet also the Bible clearly says that we are to be responsible and respond to Him. And there's no excuse. No one has an excuse. So let us live in both those truths. And in light of our passage today, let us recognize that this wonderful peace is a result of the favor of God. His grace alone. His glory alone. And let that cause us to rest in it. And if you are yet to put your trust in Christ, I just say, come today. <laughs> come into the gate today. It says whosoever. It's just simply, you just need to say, I'm done with the old way. I want Jesus. I'm done with, with this. I want his way. I want his life. I want him. And you just simply just need to believe and turn and receive, and then live in this amazing grace of God. Let me just uh, finish up with two other aspects of this proclamation. The angels don't say it in verse 14, but they say it earlier in verse 11, that this peace comes through Christ. 
It is a peace through Christ. It's a peace full of all these promises. It comes through Christ. It says in verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Jesus is, is born here. He is a Savior. What's a Savior? Someone who saves us from something, right? Someone who rescues us. Uh, this rescuer is Jesus. He is a rescuer. He's a Savior. And He's Christ, the Lord. He's Christ. He's a King. He's God's special King. He's not just any special King. He's the Lord. He's God Himself. And so this peace that we are to have comes through Christ, the Savior and Lord. God-man in the flesh, King Jesus, comes to save us, to rescue us, to bring us this peace. And He does it in a unkingly way, perhaps. So many expected a king conquering and vanquishing his enemies right from the get-go. But he came humbly on a donkey, and he came to offer his life on the cross. An upside-down king, really, in the world's ways. Because he knew in order to bring this peace, he had to reconcile God and man. For the reality is we are all in this natural state of rebellion against God and whatever form it might take. And all the strife that we have in life ultimately derives either directly or indirectly from our strife with God, from our broken relationship with God. And the reconciliation of all things comes from basically, most fundamentally, reconciling God and man. And from that flows all the other aspects of reconciliation. And so Christ came to address the most fundamental reason for strife, for lack of peace. That is our separation from God. It says in Isaiah 53 of Christ, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. His chastisement, His death on the cross brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Christ was punished to pay for our sins to bring us peace. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned, I think we have these to project, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins and to bring us peace with God. Forgiveness in God's sight reconciliation, connection with God, counted as His sons and daughters, members of His family, forgiven, accepted. Christ rose again on the third day as a promise, a guarantee of our forgiveness and our acceptance and of our future life, of the peace that awaits us in its fullness. It's through Christ, through what He's done. And so our faith is in Christ. We turn from our sins to trust in Christ. And if the band could come up as I finish with the final point, this is all to God's glory. It's all to God's glory. It's wonderful in this proclamation of the angels. It's poetic, okay, as I said before, right? To uh, glory to God in the highest, peace uh, to men on earth of his goodwill, okay? Uh, it's, it's poetic. It's poetic parallelism. Do you guys know what that is? It's kind of when you say the same thing or something similar in two different ways. And that's important, all right? That's important here. And I just have a couple minutes to touch on this really important topic. But God is saying he's equating glory to God in the highest with peace to men on earth. He's saying these two go together. Glory to God in the highest, peace to men on earth. That is fantastic. 
That is life-changing, that truth. What he's saying, and what the angels are saying, what God is saying, and he says it elsewhere in Scripture, is that he is, he is wedding, he is binding together his glory with our good. He's saying that I am glorified in heaven. I am magnified in heaven. The fullness of my glory, the infinite, eternal, incomprehensible God in all his glory, I am glorified in this, bringing peace to men on earth. And so if you belong to him, he is most glorified in you as you are most satisfied in him. He is most magnified in him, bigger than supernovas, bigger than all creation. He is most magnified in this, bringing you peace reconciling you with him, giving you all these promises, reconciling men with God. Those two are tied together in God's mind. That, that is mind-blowing. And I've had some time to think about it, so my mind is probably more blown right now than maybe you as you're thinking, what is he talking about? I don't even understand what he's saying. God in his eternal glory weds his eternal glory with our peace. That's amazing. That, that, that changes how we see peace. Because now our peace, this promise of peace, my experience of peace, God has a great interest in it. My peace is connected to the very character and eternal plans of God. It's not just a temporary peace. I feel it today, then it's gone tomorrow. It's grounded on the eternal plans, the eternal glory of God. Imagine this Christmas that, and, and I always come up with these ridiculous scenarios, but imagine you're in your house and Bill Gates knocks on your door. Knock, knock, knock. Hi, how are you doing today? You know, I, I've been following you on Facebook a little bit, and I've really just chosen, I really want to be your friend. Is that okay? And, and um, just, I not only want to be your friend, but I, I just, you know, I got all this money, and I got all this stuff, all this time to do things. I would just like to make you really happy, and your family happy. What can I do for you? And, and, and somehow, in this ridiculous scenario, he just promised all his assets and his very reputation he stakes his reputation on your happiness. My life now is going to be about making you happy in the best possible ways. If that happened today when you went home, how would you feel tonight about Christmas and about life? You might be like, wow, this is really good. And you just start thinking about all the things that you would do. And your feeling about Christmas would be changed, right? Even, even if you had difficulties in the Christmas season. Well, I have better news for you than that ridiculous scenario. God himself has knocked on your door. And you've opened the door through his grace. And he has said, how can I make you happy in the best sort of way? How can I grant you the very best thing possible to have? Peace. My peace. Now, it's not complete. The work isn't done, but he's guaranteed it. That is ours right now in Christ. That is the proclamation of the angels to us. Glory to God in the highest peace to men on earth of his goodwill. I pray that this truth, these truths in this passage will fill your minds and your hearts with deep, heavenly peace this Christmas season. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this glorious proclamation of the angels and all that it means for all those who would be of your good favor, all those who would turn and trust in you. I pray you would come now, Holy Spirit, even as we finish this time, fill the hearts and minds of your people with your everlasting peace. And through this, be greatly glorified in our lives, we pray.
Amen.